Hello, Lakers. Welcome to a splash of murder. I'm Heather, and I'll be your guide today on a lake with some eerie history. We're not here for the views of the water. We're here for what lies beneath. So strap on your life jackets and get ready to climb aboard. I'd like to give a trigger warning that today's story will have a discussion of sexual violence. Please be aware and listen with caution. Today, Lakers, we are taking a journey on an infamous river. We are in Kings County, Seattle, Washington, on a river that is 65 miles long. Its name is known to true crime sleuths from all over. However, it is not because of its scenic views. It's known for being a serial killer's dumping ground Today, Lakers, we are going to the Green River. During the 1980s, a sadistic predator had begun hunting women in Kings County. He targeted vulnerable women, sex workers, runaways, and teenage girls, and he got away with killing these women for 20 years. Possibly one of the most prolific serial killers in American history. A killer that took more lives than Jeffrey Dahmer, BTK, and the Son of Sam combined. Gary Leon Ridgway, also known as the Green River Killer. Gary Ridgway was born in Salt Lake City, Utah, February 18, 1949. He had an average childhood from the outside looking in. He grew into a teenager that enjoyed sports, cars, and girls. He is described during this time as an ordinary kid, not one who stood out as a troublemaker. He even made the freshman high school football team. He struggled with his grades in school and was found to have a low average IQ of 82. His grades were so poor that he repeated the same grade twice in high school. His low scores were very possibly due to his dyslexia. However, secrets of his dark home life could have also played a role. According to Ridgway, there was serious dysfunction within his family. Ridgway was a bedwetter late into his childhood. His mother, instead of being understanding, chose to humiliate Gary and according to him, she would then wash him in the bathtub inappropriately, which caused conflicting feelings and emotions that greatly affected how he viewed his mother, torn between his pubescent sexual feelings and outrage. He was living with this deep anger, and he hid it well. However, he couldn't contain his rage for long, and when he was 15 years old, he came across a six-year-old boy. He lured him into the woods and stabbed the child in the ribs. The little boy would survive this horrific attack. However, Gary got his first taste of violence. He laughed at what he had done. He wanted more. And from that day on, their urge to kill was there. July 15th of 1982. Two teenage boys, best friends, were hanging out riding bikes together. They rode over Meeker Street Bridge that crossed over the Green River. They looked over the bridge and saw something floating in the water. The first thing that caught their eyes were brand new bright white tennis shoes. Being young and curious, they decided to check out whatever it was in the water. They waited out until they reached what at first looked like a bag. However, before they got too close, they saw human hair floating from under a pair of jeans that was clearly wrapped around a face. One of the boys, who is now an adult, says that to this day, 
human hair in the water is something he can't stomach to see. The body floating in the water was 16-year-old Wendy Lee Cofield. Her body was recovered and ultimately ruled a homicide. Her death was determined to be due from strangulation. Wendy was beaten, she had a broken arm, and she was raped during the attack. Her sister, whom speaks in the documentary, Green River Killer, Mind of a Monster, believes that her sister fought hard, hard enough that her arm broke, and she hopes she got some good hits in before it was over. Wendy had a troubled childhood. After her parents divorced and her family split up, she became rebellious. It was more than her mother could handle, and she was ultimately placed in foster care. She would run away from those homes and scrape by doing sex work in an area called the Sea Track Strip, dubbed the name for its vicinity of the Seattle-Tacoma Airport. It was in this area that Wendy would meet Gary. She could have never guessed by his ordinary appearances that she was in the presence of true evil. On August 12th, 18 days after Wendy's body was found, a passerby near a slaughterhouse spotted a body in the Green River. After notifying police, 23-year-old Deborah Lynn Bonner was pulled from the water. Deborah went by the nickname Dub, and it was actually her nickname that was tattooed in a purple heart on her arm that helped in identifying her. On August 15th, three more bodies were found in the river. Marcia Chapman, 31, and 17-year-old Cynthia Hines were found together in the shallow waters of the river. Cynthia, who went by Cookie, had no clothes on when she was found. 15-year-old Opal Mills was found soon after on the banks of the river. Gary later confessed that he had left her there because he wanted to return to further assault her body. However, he was seen by a fisherman. After that, he could no longer use the river as his dumping ground. But that didn't stop Gary from murdering women. He chose to dispose of their bodies in the woods along the river instead of in the river. This worked well for him since he enjoyed visiting their bodies. Law enforcement had many opportunities to stop Gary Ridgway. His first five victims were found in 1982. During this time, a 19-year-old sex worker named Rebecca Gay was attacked by Gary after he picked her up from the strip. She said that he attempted to strangle her. She fought him, even biting him, and got away. She reported him to the police, and they even spoke to him. They believed his story, that it was consensual, and that she bit him, and he fought back. Nothing came of the report, and Rebecca is the only known survivor of Gary Ridgway. A year later, in 1983, Gary was seen by the boyfriend of 18-year-old Marie Malvar as she got into his truck. When she never returned, the boyfriend notified police, and Gary was questioned. In later interviews, Gary would admit to hiding the scratches that he had sustained while struggling with Maria when he was talking to the police that day. In 1984, Gary himself called the police offering his assistance and inserting himself into the investigation. He even took a polygraph in which he passed. Was it the fact that these five deceased women were sex workers, all of which coming from dysfunctional home lives, that not enough effort was spent on their case? Was it that the police department weren't capable of handling such a rare and horrific case? Or was it that Gary had everyone fooled? Gary was a master at disguise. He appeared so incredibly ordinary that neighbors, police, and even his wife could not see who he really was. 
But Gary wasn't a saint. He was arrested for solicitation of prostitutes only months before Wendy's body was found. The description of his truck, and even the description of his face, was given to police. But for decades, Gary Ridgway remained free to take more lives. For someone who had a considerably low IQ, Gary was shockingly clever, especially at how he prepared and covered up his crimes. Gary would contaminate the crime scenes by leaving cigarette butts and chewed gum everywhere. He didn't smoke, so police would be looking for someone who did. He would also move bodies from one area to another to create a more difficult trail for police to follow. And Gary targeted sex workers on purpose. In his own words, Gary said in this confession statement, I picked prostitutes as my victims because I hate prostitutes and I did not want to pay them for sex. I also pick prostitutes as victims because they are easy to pick up without being noticed. I knew they would not be reported missing right away, and might never be reported missing. I picked prostitutes because I thought I could kill as many of them as I wanted without getting caught. And for a long time, he was right. In 1985, there was false hope that the Green River Killer had stopped killing, People theorized he was dead or in prison. Women weren't disappearing. But the Green River Killer wasn't dead or in jail. He was in love. Gary Ridgway had met a woman named Judith at a Parents Without Partners get-together. They truly hit it off, and she may actually be the closest Gary has ever come to to truly loving another person. He tried to stop killing women for her. He wanted to be the man she thought he was. But Gary Ridgway was a monster, and he couldn't change that. When I say she was the closest person he ever loved, I am including Gary's own son from a previous marriage. Gary had used his own little boy in some of his crimes. He did not love him, though he claimed he tried. Gary had picked up a prostitute while his son sat next to him in his truck. She believed that she was safe because this was a dad of a young boy. He pulled the truck over and took her into the woods where he strangled her to death. All the while, his son close by sat in the truck waiting for his dad. Did he see anything? Did he know what happened? His dad didn't think so. When asked later on, would he have killed his son if his son had seen the murder? Gary responded with, no, I mean, I don't think I would. Maybe. He used his own son as a strategy to assure women he was not a danger to them. So not even his own child or the love of his life would change who Gary Ridgway was. DNA wasn't available in the 1980s as it is today. So until the scientific breakthrough was available, police turned to a more unconventional method for help in finding the Green River Killer. In 1986, they turned to another serial killer for help, Ted Bundy, who was responsible for at least 28 murders and suspected of many more, volunteered to assist investigators in finding this new killer of women. Ted Bundy had a lot of knowledge when it came to rape, murder, and necrophilia, considering that he was sitting on death row for all of those crimes. So he built a sort of psychological profile of who the police were looking for. The first thing Bundy pointed out 
was that the killer whom he referred to as the river man was more than likely returning to the bodies to perform necrophilia. Furthermore, the killer had no remorse or empathy for his victims, for their families, or even his own family. He recommended that the police stake out a fresh burial site because he believed that they would catch him as he returned to the bodies. Bundy's profile of Ridgway was rather accurate. In fact, some sources say that it was closer than the FBI Behavioral Unit's own profile. Unfortunately, the police did not act on all of his advice. For instance, Bundy believed that the killer was already on police radar, already arrested, already seen in the areas of the crime, all of which were true of Ridgeway. He had actually been in contact with police at least 10 times regarding the different disappearances in the area. Police did try to stake out the burial site, except they weren't closed-lipped about it, and the media would show up and ruin the stakeout. Ultimately, it came down to DNA in catching Gary Ridgeway. Fortunately, samples from the bodies of the Green River Killer Spree were preserved and were able to be used in 2001. Gary had been asked to provide a saliva sample in 1987, and investigators were able to compare it to the evidence taken from different victims. Two of the first five victims were incredibly influential in convicting Gary Ridgeway. Cookie and Marcia both were found with semen still inside them when they were pulled from the river. Gary had put a rock inside both of them, preventing the semen from washing away in the water. The DNA from both women matched Gary Ridgway, and in November of 2001, police announced the arrest of the Green River Killer. It went far beyond the five in the river. Gary said in a statement, I killed so many women, I have a hard time keeping them straight. He confessed to killing 71 women, however, was convicted of 48. Because of his plea deal of life sentences over the death penalty, Gary Ridgway not only confessed his murders, but also led investigators to the bodies of more women. Some were not fully recovered as time and animals had taken their course. But with Gary's confession, many families were able to get the answers to what had happened to their missing loved ones. With the number of women still missing from that time period, it's very plausible that Gary Ridgway did indeed kill many more. Gary is still alive today. He is 72 years old and sits in Walla Walla, Washington State Penitentiary. He is serving life plus 480 years for what he has done. His file remains open as there is hope of still identifying more victims. Gary spoke to the families of the victims at his trial, reading from a handwritten letter. I'm sorry for killing all those ladies. I have tried hard to remember as much as I could to help the detectives find and recover the ladies. I know how horrible my acts were. I have tried for a long time to get these things out of my mind. I am very sorry for the ladies that were not found. May they rest in peace. They need a better place than what I gave them. Gary chose prostitutes because he thought of them as disposable, throwaway people that no one would care if they were gone. But Gary was wrong. These women, and mostly teen girls, were someone's sister, daughter, best friend, and even mother. They were loved. They had dreams and ambitions beyond what society thought of their work. Many of the families spoke out of the trial. Sarah King said, I was only five when my mom died. The one thing I want you to know 
is that there was a daughter at home. I was that daughter, waiting for my mother to come home. This statement, along with other heartbreaking victim testimonies, were tearfully voiced to Gary Ridgway. Because these women were cared for, they were missed, and they were loved. Okay, Lakers, it's time to dock. Next week, join me on another creepy adventure on a murderous lake. But until then, stay safe and be kind to one another. <laughs>